So since February, we have been exploring one of Jesus' most famous, and as I've been arguing for, one of his most world-changing teachings, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And thus far, we've seen how the Sermon on the Mount is much more than a lesson on morality. It's much more than a lesson on how to live. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a declaration, first and foremost, of very good news. It's the good news that a new reality is actually invading our world. The good news that God is present, that this is His world, and that there is new life available to you and I. That's pretty cool. Now, this new life is available to everyone, as we learned in the Beatitudes. And that new life begins with a truly repentant heart. A stance towards God and others that confesses, I don't have it all figured out. In fact, I've got a lot of things screwed up, and I desperately need Jesus to help me. That's all it takes. It doesn't matter your race or your gender or your social status. If you've got a heart like that, that's poor in spirit, Jesus says, come on, I'll train you to be my disciple. For centuries, for centuries, people had the law to guide them. But over those centuries, people learned to focus either on trying to keep the law perfectly on the one hand or to find loopholes into how to escape the law on the other. The problem was, of course, both extremes don't work because God's law is not his ultimate ideal for life. What I mean is this. One of, like, for example, the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is do not steal. God gave this law, do not steal, because why? People were stealing from each other. The ethic behind that law, though, is much greater. God's ultimate ethic is not that we just wouldn't steal. His ultimate ethic is that we would love one another so much that we would be generous and give of what we have to other people. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not doing away with the laws and the sayings of the prophets. He's recapturing the original ethic behind the law. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, right, what does Jesus say? Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So if you're at the altar, if you're at the altar presenting your offering and there you remember that you have something against your brother, leave your offering right there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or your sister, then come and present your offering. See, he's saying reconciliation with one another is just as important as worship. In fact, it, it is an aspect of worship. He goes on to say, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Some heavy-hitting stuff. The last few weeks have been heavy-hitting topics. We've talked about anger and sex and fidelity and marriage. 
very serious, very relevant in our culture, very relevant in most of our lives, right? But then there's Jesus' next topic. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Don't swear on heaven, that's the throne of God. Or on Jerusalem, that's the city of the great king. Or on the earth, that's the footstool of his feet. Nor shall you swear on a hair on your own head. You can't make one hair white or black. So, let your yes be yes, or your no be no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. All this talk about oaths and vows and swearing on hairs of your head, swearing on places, sounds foreign, sounds outdated. When's the last time you swore on Jerusalem? It sounds irrelevant. I want to argue that this message is every bit as relevant as it ever was and affects every one of us every day in how we use words and how we perceive the words of others. To join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the gift of communication. In so many ways, our complex ability to communicate separates us from many of the other creatures in your kingdom. But Lord, we also know the folly of language, spoken and unspoken, written and physical. We know how to fudge the truth, how to manipulate, how to put false faces forward. We know how to outright lie. In fact, Lord, in some areas of our lives, we're so used to it. We're so used to it that, that we're numb. We're numb to this teaching of yours. Lord, I pray for conviction. I pray for truth for me and for all of us, that you would uh, make us men and women of integrity and simplicity in our communication, that we would be trustworthy and represent you well. Guide us, Lord, as we dig into your, into your words, into your teaching. Amen. So I mentioned the relevancy of today's passage on letting your yes be yes and your no be no. In order to see its relevancy, let's try and get a handle on what Jesus was talking about in his context because it still seems weird all this talk about oaths and things. So in ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, oaths were common occurrences between individuals, between families, between nations. Last week, in fact, we had our little skit up here about ancient Near Eastern marriages. You remember what happened? We had uh, Ben and Christina, and they were going to get married. And so Christina had her dowry. She had this piggy bank. And Ben had all of these stuffed animals, which represented livestock or cattle. And what we talked about was in the ancient Near East, weddings were kind of contractual. Because you were binding not just two people together, but two families together. And so there was a lot at stake. And so what you would do is you you come together, and you would exchange 
the dowry and the bride price, and those were kind of like almost prenuptials, like um, collateral. So that if one of those two parties reneged on their commitment in marriage, uh, the, the family would have some recourse. It was also kind of a retainer. It would, it would cause them to, I don't know, think twice about infidelity because they would be risking a lot. Well, the same similar idea is true in oaths. You would have... Um, uh, <clears throat> You'd have maybe nations coming together and they would want a truce. And so let's say there are two Canaanite nations coming together uh, or two Canaanite tribes in a nation and they are fighting each other and all of a sudden they want to have a truce. They want to say, uh, okay, here's going to be the border. You guys stay on this side of the aisle. You guys stay on this side. And, and no one is allowed to cross the aisle. And you'd have all these stipulations. And what you would do is you would, you would get together. Your leaders would get together. You'd set up a monument. In fact, uh, in Genesis, there's a, a, a reenactment of this type of scene with Jacob and Laban. And so they build this stack of stones, and this represents that this event happened. And then what they're going to do is, is exchange verbally the stipulations of what... Okay, you stay on this side, you stay on this side. You're uh, not allowed to talk unless it's like a sanctioned deal. They would have all this list of rules. You would share a meal, which uh, uh, was like signing a contract in today's terms. But most importantly, what you would do is you would, you would make an oath. And you would call on the name of your God. So if you're Canaanite tribes, you'd maybe call on the Baals. And you would say, okay, Katie, um, you're the leader of this tribe. If you cross that line, then you are saying the Baal God will curse you and your family. And Marsha, you're doing the same. You're the leader of this tribe. So, um, so these oaths will call down blessings. You're blessed if you keep your commitments, but you are cursed by your God if you don't keep your commitments. So these oaths were serious business. And the Hebrew people would do the same thing. They would swear on Yahweh that they would keep their word. And if they didn't, they were saying, Yahweh curse us if we don't keep our oath or our end of the system. Now, why do people make oaths? Anytime you see these oaths between human beings in the Bible, you know why they're there? Because they don't trust each other. From the beginning, we see that oaths are a system created because there is lack of trust. There's lack of integrity. People would make oaths and vows to each other and call upon God to witness those oaths and vows. It was a cultural norm. So various laws would tell people to keep their oaths. In the Old Testament, there's different places where it says, Keep your oaths to the Lord. But the laws never condone oaths. They don't say this is the prescribed way to do it. Basically, they say if you're going to swear at all, follow through on your word. Well, enter first century Palestine, the context in which Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount. The religious leaders of the day were also kind of part of the legal system. They interpreted the law. So they began to twist and distort this whole custom of oath-making. First they said that swearing by God in an oath was too disrespectful. So they would make elaborate alternative oaths. They would say, I swear by heaven, and then they would avoid God's name. Or they would um, uh, try and uh, swear by Jerusalem or by the temple as a way of respecting God, but still communicating the seriousness of their oath. You get the picture. All this was supposedly done in reverence for God. But then people began to use it as a loophole. Sometimes people would break their oaths, but they would argue, well, I didn't really swear on God. See, I just swore on the temple. 
I didn't really swear by God, I, I swore on the earth. Okay, so it's not, not the same thing. So, it's the equivalent of getting off on a technicality in court. Right? And so when Jesus comes, he comes in saying, make no oath at all. Don't you see by swearing on heaven, which is God's throne, or the earth, which is the footstool of his feet, or the temple, which you know, is the place that he indwells, it's where his presence is. Don't you see by swearing on anything created, you're swearing on God anyway? You can't escape him. He's everywhere. He made you. He made the hairs on your own head. So even when you swear on your own life, you're swearing on something of God's. People are made in God's image. They have priceless worth. And when we interact with God's image bearers, and we make a commitment with them, we're making a commitment under God. We don't need oaths. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, oaths give lies power. Let me say that again. Oaths give lies power. Because oaths can be used to escape what is promised, rather than ensuring we are the kinds of people who keep our word. If we didn't have oaths, and we just had our word, there'd be nothing to hide behind. No excuses. Your yes would be yes, your no would be no, or you would be a liar. So, if this is true... There are a few things that jump out, a few questions automatically. First of all, what about God? He makes oaths in Scripture. Now, if Jesus comes in saying that we shouldn't make oaths, how come God gets to do it? I don't get that. God makes oaths with Abraham to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse him. Well, I think it's kind of simple. God makes oaths because we doubt his faithfulness. God makes oaths because we doubt his faithfulness. He does it for us. And God never swears on anything or anyone other than himself. And up to this point, he's always kept his commitments. So he has a sterling record. I think he can do what he wants. Second, what about swearing oaths to government or like the military service? Like when I signed up and took my vows before... Um, going into boot camp. You know, I had to do this thing and swear to defend my country and I had to do all this, these hoops, right? Um, well, you may not even think that's a big issue, but most of the early church fathers and the teachers and leaders in the first centuries of the church were dead set against taking oaths of any kind. Today, our brothers and sisters, the Quakers, don't take oaths in court. They won't swear on the Bible in court. They don't join the military because uh, they take this teaching of Jesus very literally, and they won't take any kind of oaths, gets them in a lot of trouble sometimes. I want um, to bring this up because it is a viable way to live out this teaching. And I want you to make up your own mind on it. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but uh, you need to have a clear conscience whichever way you decide. Another way to read what Jesus is getting at is that the ethic behind the law, or to look at the ethic behind the oath-making. Jesus may or may not be dead set on never making an oath, but he is definitely saying this. He's saying, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. That is a command. That is, be a person of integrity. Be a person who embodies what you say. Be a person who doesn't need an oath in order to believe. Raises another issue. 
is it ever okay to lie? I mean, that was my reason for having Katie read that that story of the Hebrew midwives. I know that's weird to read before we release our kids and talk about killing the kids, but trust me, it had to do with the sermon. Here is a story in Scripture where these ladies lie. They make up a story. It wasn't even like a white lie. Like they make up a whole alternative story and they're praised by God. So what's up with that? Is it ever okay to lie? And I'm not just talking about Guys, when your wife asks if her outfit looks good. I'm not talking about those kind of things. I'm talking about, for example, uh, when people hid Jews from the Nazis. Let's just go mega scale. And they choose to lie to the authorities instead of giving up the people hiding in their homes. What about somebody surviving in an abusive situation where if they, they either lie and fudge the truth or they get abused? Okay, there are real ethical dilemmas here with just a simple let your yes be yes and a no be no. So let's take this examples of the Nazis and the Jews because it's, it's foreign but it's big and I think we can all kind of get there. Let's say you're in a non-Jewish family. Let's say you're a family of Christians and you staunchly disagree with the Nazi ideology. I hope you would agree with me there. So you're harboring, harboring a Jewish family and a secret compartment in your home, and the Nazis come to your door, and you've got this teaching, Pastor Chris just preached at church to let your yes be yes and your no be no, and here's this officer saying, do you have Jews in your house? Now, most people, and I hope you're one of them, I will tell you how to think on this, I think you should lie to the face of the Nazis to preserve uh, the lives of the people in your house. But how, how do you square that theologically? I mean, it's one thing to say, well, that's, that's a, stupid, it's a stupid example because of course we're going to save the people and don't worry about it. But no, really, when you start to, to think about all the nuances of life and let your yes be yes and your no be no, how do you square that theologically that on the one hand it's okay to lie to somebody and then where do you turn it on and off? As Christians, we believe Jesus has called us into a covenant relationship between us and him and between each other. Like There's this covenant relationship between us. We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Seriously, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a relationship with one another. When we deal with one another, we deal with image bearers of the living God. We are called then to be truthful, to speak the truth and love to one another. And this ethic of love and living the truth will lead to rules. It will lead to, to kind of laws and how we live our life. For example, as Christians, we shouldn't cheat on tests in school. Right? And we probably shouldn't cheat on taxes, right? Because of that law of truthfulness and law of love. We shouldn't cheat, right? We shouldn't lie, we, and so on. But what about when the Nazis are at your door? And replace that scenario with any number of big things that could happen in your life. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I want to present three common views by Christian theologians uh, and ethicists. First is the term called graded absolutism. Write it down if you want, I don't care. Graded absolutism. In this view, telling the truth and saving lives are both viewed as morally good and right. I know Wasserman's in his element here. You should come up here and teach this. So 
telling the truth and saving lives are both ethically good and right. However, in the graded absolutism view, when these two moral truths are put in conflict with one another, saving lives comes out as better, and therefore it is not sinful to lie. It is not sinful to lie because saving the lives of the Jewish people under your floor or in your house is better. So that's graded absolutism. In fact, followers, proponents of graded absolutism would say it is good to lie in that situation because it saves lives. All right? A second way to look at this is called conflicting absolutism. So again, you've got telling the truth. And saving lives are both morally good. And when those two morally good things come into conflict with each other, for example, if you're hiding Jews in your house and there are Nazis at your door, then there is no unsinful solution. You either tell the Nazis where the Jews are and that's sinful and wrong, or you lie and that is sinful and wrong. Now, the lesser of the two evils is to tell the lie so that people might live and... Like Helmut Thielicke, who is a pastor in Nazi Germany during this time, who was against the Nazis, he's a proponent of this view. So he says, we live in a fallen, cruddy world where there's lots of tension, and this is the lesser of two evils. I am going to sin by lying in order to save lives. Okay? So that's another way to look at this dilemma. Third is called the covenantal view. and has nothing to do with our covenant denomination. It's just called that. In this view, we see truth-telling as relational. So, I have a covenant with my spouse. And in that covenant, I should tell her the truth in love. I have a covenant relationship with friends, with the church, with my broader family. I have a covenant relationship to tell the truth to them. If I'm not an abusive father and I love my kids well, I expect my kids to tell me the truth. If I find out that they're lying to me or that there's half-truths, there's going to be consequences. That's an expectation in our home. But, even though I have a covenant relationship with my kids, there are certain things that are not appropriate to tell them. For example, let's pretend Corey and I were having real financial problems. So we have daughters that are five and two. It would not be appropriate for me to tell them to fully disclose all of these pressures because it does no good and it causes undue anxiety to them. You see, so it's actually more loving not to tell them all the truth in a covenant relationship. In the same way, we have a covenant, uh, a covenant commitment to love other people. The Nazis come to the door with their twisted and evil ideology. I have no covenant with them. They're not acting as image bearers of God. They are not acting as Christ. I have no covenant to let them kill people in my home. In fact, earlier we heard the story of the Hebrew midwives who lied to the Egyptian authorities in order to save the male children, they lied because their covenant was with God and the people of God and not the, the twisted uh, kingdom of Egypt that was at the time. These three views are but three examples among many that respect the complexity and the nuance of living as a Christian in a fallen world. They're not excuses to choose when we tell the truth, whenever we feel like it or not, okay? The truth is, we have a serious problem with lying. 
We have a serious problem with just keeping communication simple. In 97, it was a good year, we got married. But also in 97, something else happened. A movie came out, Jim Carrey starred in it, called Liar Liar. He plays this guy, Fletcher Reed, who's of course a defense lawyer. Um, which, you know, how ironic, he, something happens to him, he cannot lie in part of the movie. And so, yeah, that's part of the comedy right there. A lawyer who can't lie, ha ha. So Fletcher is this young, successful lawyer who's climbing the corporate ladder by offering loopholes and technicalities to rich people who are guilty, but he gets them off the hook. To be successful, Fletcher must lie. He must distort the truth, tell half-truths, and con conveniently forget to tell the whole truth. Now, his marginal character makes him a success in his lawyer world and makes him an utter failure in his home life. He loses a marriage, and he loses the trust and respect of his five-year-old son, Max. On Bring Your Parent to School Day, Fletcher breaks his word to his son to show up at the school because he had a, a complication in one of his cases he was working on. So Max is there, fatherless, at the front of his classroom. And so the teacher says, well, Max, why don't you describe for us what your dad does since he's not here? And Max says, my dad's a liar. And the teacher says, oh, Max, you mean your dad's a lawyer? And Max says... It's the same thing, right? And, of course, everyone laughs because, oh, uh, lawyers and the cliche of lawyers being creative with the truth. But there's a real sadness in that scene with Max. And I think it's especially highlighted on Father's Day. That's breaking one's word has a poisonous effect on everyone around us. Breaking our word just has a poisonous effect on everyone around us. And I'm not a big, like, I, I don't at all think dads are more important than moms or anything like that. But for some reason, it just even in just an experience, a, a dad's integrity communicates so much non-verbally. I, I think it's maybe because... As dads, we often don't speak as much. You know, like there's other ways that moms show love. But dads, when we don't follow through on our word, it just, it seems to cut so much deeper. Um, but I think we should all be truth tellers, of course. But uh, this, this problem we have of not being truthful in all our ways is poisonous. And it undermines faith. It undermines our ability to... Um, to have trusting relationships with one another. And you know, lying doesn't just hurt other people. It makes us, it makes you and I less than human. When we exchange the truth for a lie, we have to create an alternative reality. We have to cover our tracks. Every time we lie, it takes more work. You're constantly wondering, who did I tell that to? And how, did I, how do I cover my tracks on all of these things? We become slaves. We really do become slaves to the lies we create rather than being whole by living in the truth. Lies don't even have to be black and white. They don't have to be as simple as telling you, my name's not Chris, when you darn well know my name is Chris, right? They don't have to be black and white. They take on all kinds of shapes and sizes. Human beings by nature communicate and we've learned, we've become masters on how to use words and emphases and gestures to bend the truth in order to benefit ourselves. 
So on the large, let's take this impersonal first of all. This happens on the large stage all the time in politics, right? Think of Nixon and Watergate, Clinton and an intern, Bush and WMD in Iraq. There's all kinds of ways that people in power can distort truth to get what they want, right? Information has power to persuade or even to bring whole nations into conflict. But I don't want to leave it on this big scale. Every big scale issue with lying starts at a small scale. It starts with every individual human heart. Jesus is calling for an ethic of love. An ethic of respect for one another. And that begins with telling the truth in love to each other. The foundational problem with oaths is that they set up a two-tiered system of communication. If my oath makes what I'm saying more credible, if I have to swear on a Bible, or say I promise to get my point across, then what about when I don't swear on the Bible? What about when I don't say I promise or I swear on my mother's grave? Then is what I'm saying less credible? I mean, it may seem obvious, but there's a serious problem. When hiring, why do companies do background checks and require character references? Because people lie. Why do we have to tell oaths in court? Because people lie. Why, when we give really sensational stories, like I saw a UFO, I swear I saw it. Why do we have to do that? Well, because I probably wouldn't believe the UFO thing, but um, I promise I'll be on time this time, honey. Why does Facebook have to have a maybe button and just a yes or a no? Why do we click yes on Facebook and then not show up without warning? <laughs> it begs the question, why do we lie? Why do we have such a hard time really being simply yes or no people? I think that all distortions of truth at their essence reveal a great insecurity in us. A great insecurity. We live in constant doubt. Let's face it. We live in constant doubt that God really could love us that much as the preacher says. Or that God really could love us enough to die for even me. We live in a constant state of competition. When we look at people, we size them up. We're in competition in business. Competition, uh, if you have kids, you've seen them compete. Competition is churches. I mean, it pervades everything. Nothing escapes this. We think, if I don't look out for myself, will anyone else really look out for me? At least, will I be looked out for in the way that I want? So what do we do? We say the right things to advance our ideas. We say it in the right way to advance our position or our status. We don't show people certain sides of ourselves out of fear of what they might think about us. We're like Adam and Eve who sinned and then hide in the garden because we're ashamed. We're ashamed and we don't want people to know who we really are. I've got good news. This message 
not just my message, but this message that Jesus is talking about, it's not primarily about morals. Have you figured that out yet? That Christianity, if you follow it through, it, it comes up with a great lifestyle. But it is not primarily a moral religion. It's not primarily about the do's and the don'ts. What Jesus is saying is much more than just don't lie. Okay, pat on the back, go do it. Go, go team. Just go tell the truth. All right, I know you can do it. Jesus is saying, you don't have to lie anymore. That's way better news than, okay team, go, go be good. He's saying, you don't have to live like this anymore. It's good news what Jesus is saying. He's saying we can be set free from the bondage of lies because we're called to die to ourselves. If we keep grasping at getting our position and making ourselves advance in whatever world we think we're in, we've lost track of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, guess what? I'm inviting you to die to yourself. So it doesn't matter what people think about you. We're invited to die to the opinions of others. To die that we might live. I know that's not a real popular thing to talk about in churches. It's all about be happy and be good. Jesus calls us to die, and that is the best thing we could possibly do. Because when I stop caring what you think about me, when I stop caring about how you perceive me, and I start to be real, and I know that God cares about me, that gives me a whole new freedom in life. And I think about, I'm embarrassed Justin and Megan a little bit. I think about Justin and Megan, newlyweds in our culture. And what are they going to do? They're going to go move to a town of like 3,000, highly tribal influence. They're going to go work at a gospel mission. Does that sound like success to you? Does that sound like, hey, I'm marrying your daughter and I'm going to, oh, I don't know how I'm going to provide. But you know, there's an authenticity There's a courage in the midst of fear. Ask them. They're afraid. I would be too. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. This this church plan is crazy. I've got two little kids. This Thanks for being here. Thanks for tithing. (laughs) Serious. I mean, this life of faith, it, it it causes you to just put it out there and be real. And what you find is that it's not easy, but it's real. And Oh, whoa, Matrix references came. But like, you know, the people that like live on the Nebuchadnezzar, the ship, if you're not following, don't worry. Um, you know, they, they choose reality that is much harder and grittier and underground than eating juicy steaks that aren't real. Anyway, if you watch the Matrix, you know what I mean. Okay. So Jesus calls us to live with this integrity. He calls us to this freedom of being real. But here's here's the best part of all. Jesus is the only one who ever truly embodied integrity. He is the fulfillment of his own promise to us. The God who made us came and died for us to set us free from sin and death. So if you are stuck in a bed of lies in rotating masks depending on wherever you go and we all are let's not pretend like I'm talking to you here I am one of you I've got facades that I still put up I'm trying to find them I'm trying to break them down we're all in this process right so we have these things if we're sick of this we could begin that road to freedom right now right by placing our faith in Jesus the one who knows you through and through and 
loves you just the same. And I'll go back to the very beginning. How do we begin this transformation? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who actually think they need Jesus for help. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are liars. <laughs> we, um, we have a real hard time trusting you. And there are lots of reasons for that, and you know them. Some of them, some of them you know are extremely valid and are going to be with us forever. Some are excuses. Because we think we know how to live better than you. Lord, I pray for a release from bondage for all of us. I pray that you would help us to be children who walk in the light of truth. And I pray, oh God, that this of all places, this community right here, would be an incredibly welcoming laboratory for learning how to do life with you. Lord, help us to exemplify that core value of ours of authenticity, being real, taking the masks off, and acceptance, Lord, where, where we love one another with grace and compassion, despite our warts and wrinkles. And where we call each other to higher standards, where we speak the truth in love.